there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guests are Jordan Morris of the U.S. Men's National Team and the Seattle Sounders and Carl Anka of The Athletic UK. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier and lots of free posts as well. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Now, here's my interview with Jordan Morris. Our guest now is Jordan Morris, the Seattle Sounders winger who's in the U.S. men's national team's January camp ahead of three big World Cup qualifiers starting at the end of the month. Jordan, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. No worries. No problem. Lots to talk about here. You've been in both the December and January U.S. camps after coming back from your ACL injury. One thing I always like to ask players is how has this camp been so far? And are there any are there any players but that have stood out to you in a good way so far? Yeah, no, it's been um <clears throat> it's been a, a great camp so far. Good to get back with the with the group and um I think it's always uh you know obviously important before these these big games coming up to get together to get the fitness in. I think that's been a big component of this camp is obviously since since this group isn't playing games, getting that um, fitness component in, and um, you know, hopefully putting ourselves in, in a good spot to make that that qualifying roster. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of players have been been doing really well. Duan um, has come in; he, he's kind of the newer face that I haven't you know seen quite as much of, and I've been really impressed with him. I think he's done a a really good job. So um, you know, everyone's everyone's doing well and, and working hard. I realize it's not guaranteed that you'll be on the roster for the World Cup qualifiers, but if you do make it, what kind of role would you be hoping to have? You know, any role, um, of course, the goal is, is to be part of that group. And, and I think throughout my whole recovery, throughout um, these last two camps, I've just been trying to work really hard to, to get my fitness, fitness levels back up, to get my sharpness back up coming off of a long-term injury. And, and of course, wanting to be a part of that qual- qualifying group at the end of the month but whatever role i'm asked to play if i do make that that uh that team you know i'll of course play uh uh, happily i know that you know haven't been out for for a while um that you know things might not be going perfectly for me now i know there's things i need to continue to work on i'm actually you know feeling really sharp this camp feeling fit feeling um like my touch on the ball have gotten a lot better um but you know whatever role that I'm, i'm asked to play if you know i do end up making the squad i will of course happily happily play and that's what i love about this group is um, it's just guys fighting and working for each other. I'm sure you've had discussions with Coach Greg Burhalter. What has he told you about what he wants from you right now? I mean, I think it's just um, again, it's before the the December camp. It was um, you know a discussion with him um, that you know, I, like I mentioned, just getting my fitness and my sharpness back up because uh, I was fortunate enough to come back th- this year, and, and that was my goal was to try to get back and and play the end of the season with the Sounders, and um, but we. we we lost pretty quick there in the, in the playoffs. So didn't get too much game time. And so just getting back and being able, being able to take part in the friendly in December and, and just getting that fitness and that sharpness back is, is really important. And in terms of on the field, I think it's similar to, to, you know, before the injury, what, what I felt like I could bring was, was stretching teams, getting in behind, using my, my pace to, to disorganize the, the opponent. And so I think it's, it's more the, the same in, in terms of, of what I can bring to, to the table. At this moment, how close do you feel like you are to being back at your best? I think there's definitely a, a ways to, you know, a little ways to go. I, you know, actually feel really, really good this camp. I felt like it's been a big step up from even December um, fitness wise, uh, sharpness touches on the ball. I think of course, when you're going through a rehab uh, and I'm super grateful for, for the staff in Seattle, they pushed me really, really hard. So the fitness level, when I came back, I actually felt really good. Um, I think like the gameplay and the sharpness and things like that are always going to come, uh, a, a little bit later. So, um, coming to this camp, I've actually felt really, really good. I feel like, um, there's definitely still some things that are a little bit fast and things that, um, I want to continue to work on continuing to get sharp in front of goal is obviously a, a big one for, for, for myself. That's a big part of my game. So, um, definitely not quite at a hundred percent or was a, where I was before the injury, but I'm feeling really, really good. So a question for you about these upcoming qualifiers, if you end up being involved in them, 
these could be in some seriously cold and snowy winter weather based on the locations of these games and the time of year. How do you feel personally as a player about playing in super cold weather and how do you prepare yourself for a game in those conditions? Yeah, I think obviously it's the same for, for both teams. And I think you just have to look at it like that. It's, um, you know, maybe not the perfect, most ideal weather coming from Seattle, you know, it's not freezing, but we play in cold weather a lot, you know? So I think growing up used to that, and obviously this will be much colder, potentially some snow, but I think when you look at the games that you're playing in, the fact that there are world cup qualifiers, the end, the end goal, none of that other stuff really matters. You know what each, each of these games mean and, and how important they are. And when you step on the field, I think all that, you know, everything else outside just fades away because you realize the, the importance of the game you're playing. I did want to ask you something about a photo of you that I saw arriving at camp in Phoenix on the U.S. Soccer Twitter. It looked like you were wearing an N95 mask, which is kind of the strongest kind. With Omicron spreading so easily now, what kind of efforts are you taking to avoid COVID, especially with your diabetes being a risk factor? And, and have you been able to avoid getting COVID so far? Yeah, um, I actually had it um, a couple of weeks, uh, about a week before coming into camp. So, um, you know, it was definitely spreading and still is, of course. And, and um, I had it um, back in Seattle and um, fortunately didn't have any, any um, crazy symptoms or anything like that. But yeah, I think throughout this whole process, especially being a diabetic, I wanted to um, really be as careful as possible. Um, and, and I think traveling into camp for myself, for my teammates, for the staff, just trying to be as careful as possible when you get into this group, because um, you obviously want everyone to be fit and healthy to, to play and to practice and to, to try to push to make that qualifying roster. So I think, like I said, kind of for, for myself, of course, and for the team, um, just just trying to take all the precautions necessary to to, to try and avoid this thing, but it's just, it's crazy right now. Yeah, no, totally. I'm glad you're doing okay. Uh, at this point, um, you. you know, you were out obviously for a long time last year with his ACL injury. What did you learn about yourself during the recovery period this time? Because it wasn't your first. Yeah, for sure. I think it was, yeah, unfortunately it wasn't, wasn't my first. And I think it was even, it just, you know, made the, the things that I learned, in my first recovery, even more apparent. And, and so much of that was just not taking for granted a single day that you have while, while you're playing, whether you're training um, games, whatever it is, you know, it's just a blessing to be able to, to do what we do for a living and to be able to play a sport that we love for a, a living. I think you really realize that when it's taken away from you and, and when it's not my first time going through an injury like that, um, you know, I think mentally it's really challenging to, to sit and watch, um, you know, whether it's games in Seattle or, or the national team or, you know, watching the Swansea games at the beginning, wishing that I could have been playing in those games and um, been out there. But, but I think when you have that taken from you, you just realize how, um, much, how much you love it, how much you love the game, how much you, you truly uh, appreciate. And, and when, when I came back again, it just made that so much more clear. So I don't ever, you know, not that I did this before, but you don't ever take a day for granted. And I'm just grateful for, for the opportunity to be playing again. Do you watch a lot of soccer? Yeah, a good amount, I would say. Yeah. I'm just curious whether it was during your recovery or even just regularly, because I, I, I remember an interview, I think it was a press conference, like Weston McKenney a few months ago, like said something like he never watches soccer. And I was kind of like, I was surprised, but like, I realized guys are different. Do you, do you watch a fair amount? I think, yeah, a fair amount. I think sometimes it was tough during my recovery. I would say I would watch, you know, the national team, of course, and the Sounders games and things like that. But just to have the game watching as much as I normally did, probably not to try to get that escape a little bit because it was tough mentally to yeah. to want to be playing and wishing that I was out there. But yeah, I would say I wouldn't say I'm, you know, watch a crazy amount, but I, I definitely watch watch a, a lot of soccer. You're in U.S. camp with a good friend of yours, your club teammate, Christian Roldan. How would you describe your friendship with him and the support that he provided over the past year during your recovery? Yeah, Christian's obviously been great through through both my recoveries. He's one of my <clears throat> best friends on and off the field. So it's it's nice when you come into a camp like this or, or back in Seattle to have that that support. And, um, you know, when I was away from the team or, or they were on away trips or things like that, just talking to him, filling me in on what was going on, different things like that, keeping me feeling like part of the group. I think when you're, when you're injured, the hardest part is you feel isolated. You feel isolated from the team. Um, you feel, you know, you're off in the gym doing things. Yourself. You're never really actually in the first parts of your recovery. And it's really, it's, it can get lonely and isolating. And so I think having a, a good friend like that um, to, to keep you involved a bit, what was mentally really refreshing during, 
during the tough parts of rehab. The big news for the Sounders this week was the announcement that Albert Rusnak had been signed by the team. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, a huge signing. Obviously, playing against him, I uh, you know, know how, how good of a player he is and, and the, the quality that he brings. And I think whenever you bring a, a player like that into a group like we already have, it's, it's pretty impressive. You know, we, we have a lot of quality on that team. We feel like we can challenge for for championships every year. And I think this year, especially, you know, I think we, we, with adding him and, and having most of our group coming back, we, we really feel like we can challenge for, for everything this year. And I, and I think that that's our, our main goal is, you know, starting with, with champions league coming up, we really want to, we want to win that and then push forward into the league and do really, really well and, and do big things and, and adding a quality player. Uh, like him is, is only going to help that. I was reading that you're continuing to work on your Stanford degree. How does that work? How much do you have left? What's your major? Yeah, um, pretty much a, a you know a business degree that I'm working on. And, and um, with COVID starting, Stanford doesn't you know offer any online classes. So when I left, um, I was going to go back at some point after my career and finish up. But when COVID started, um, you know they they all the colleges went online and Stanford began offering online classes. So I, I re-enrolled in 2020 actually, and was taking classes that year. Um, I, I stopped when I went overseas to, to Swansea, just with that new um, adventure. And, and, uh, and then right when I got hurt, I kind of picked it right back up again. And throughout my recovery process, it was a way, you know, I felt like I was reaching towards, obviously my, my whole focus was rehabbing, getting back on the field, but I had something when I got home that I was, I was going towards a goal and, um, and reaching towards something. So I, you know, I knocked out quite a bit. I probably have a little over a quarter left to, to finish up at some point, but but I got a lot of it done, which was great. That's huge. Congrats yeah. on on what you've been doing. I just did a big story, a written story on Katarina Macario, who went to Stanford, yeah. terrific player, visited her in Lyon, um, and you know she got her degree. She said it was the the biggest single achievement of her life, and, and like yeah, even more so than than any of the soccer stuff she's done awesome. have you have, have you observed her at all over the years i'm just curious oh, she's unbelievable i i've you know I, I i'm trying to remember i don't think we overlapped at all at, at stanford but of course i followed um both the men's and women's team when i left and some of the you know the goals that she would score and it's been really fun to follow her she's she's really impressive so um yeah I, i've never met her or been able to, to talk to her but um, i've loved watching watching her from afar and I also saw you got married in the past year uh, during your recovery. How, yeah, what kind of impact has that had for you? Oh, it's it was the one silver lining of, of the recovery process because um, normally MLS marriages all take place in, in December, you know. But we were able to <laughs> to get married in October when I when I got um, you know when I got injured. We we uh, we had a wedding planned actually for the December before and had to cancel for for COVID. So when I um, when I got injured, it was kind of like, well, this is kind of the one year we're going to have to, to be able to get married at a time that we, we won. And I told the training staff, right, right at the beginning, I'm like, I don't care about anything else that one weekend in October, I need that off to, to go get married. We got married in, in California. So, um, it was awesome. It was just a, a small wedding there. And it was, the, like I said, the one silver lining of, of the, the injury. And, and just to wrap up, a year ago, obviously, you had gone on loan to Swansea City. Do you still have any interest in in Europe at some point for your club career? Yeah, definitely. I think so. I was really excited about that that opportunity, really excited to be fighting with the team to try to make it up to the to the Prem. And, and you know, unfortunately, they, lost, they ended up losing in, in the final, but um, it was a an awesome opportunity. And I wasn't there for long enough. Uh, of course, I think I only played in four or five games, something like that, but I was loving the city, the team, my, my teammates. Um, it was a, an awesome experience. I was really excited for, for the new challenge. And I definitely had an itch to, to get over there last year at that time. Um, and it, that hasn't been, been scratched, hasn't been fulfilled, you know, so we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm really happy in, in Seattle, of course. Uh, but I think I, I definitely have that drive to, to get over there, but wherever I'm playing, I'm just going to continue to work hard to, to be the best player I can. And yeah, I think, like I said, having that new mentality coming back from, from this injury. So Jordan Morris has a big year ahead with the U S men's national team and the Seattle Sounders. Jordan, good luck with everything. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. Big thanks to Jordan Morris. Now here's my interview with Carl Anka. 
Our guest now is a big talent in global soccer media. Carl Anka is a Manchester United reporter and columnist for The Athletic. He's also a broadcaster and the co-author of a book with Marcus Rashford called You Are a Champion. Carl, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Lots to talk about here, but I want to start with Man United because I certainly have been to Man United a few times to cover that team over the years, but never on a regular basis. And I know there's some differences between sort of media access and what the day-to-day is like between sort of U.S. sports and sports over in the U.K., especially with Manchester United, i found over the years. <laughs> it, it, it can be an interesting experience. Could you explain a little bit what it's like covering Manchester United on a daily basis? Let's start with size, right? So Manchester United are probably, arguably... Uh, top three most supported football clubs on the entire planet. Uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, it, it's something like... It's, it's several million football fans on, on the planet Earth support Manchester United. Tens of millions. Um, someone once tried to argue it might be hundreds of millions, possibly. Um, so first things first, scale. Uh, this is a monumental football club to the point where you can describe it less as a football club and more of a... Uh, historical institution so mm-hmm. we're talking uh, Dallas Cowboy size or New York Knicks size uh, so there is a daily interest in Manchester United uh, my good friend Duncan Alexander uh, he works for Opta and he has a he has a joke that says every weekend there is one crisis club in the Premier League the trick is you should never be the crisis club um, and there's a sort of sub-story that within the top six or the big six football clubs in England, one of them always has to be the crisis club. One of them loses a game, and then the inquisition begins. Is it the manager? Is it the player? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Um, and at the moment, Manchester United are hovering around crisis more so than the other clubs. So Manchester United have um, 19 Premier League titles, which is now tied. No, 19 English top division titles, I should say, uh, which is tied with Liverpool. Uh, they had the historic football coach, um, Sir Alex Ferguson. They have three Champions League trophies, which makes them the second most successful English club in the Champions League as well. Uh, they're the only English club to have won a treble, a treble being quantified as the Premier League, Champions League and the FA Cup. So they're a big deal. They're, they're a big deal historically. They're a big deal in the modern day. They are a bit similar to the Dallas Cowboys or a bit similar to, to the New York Knicks or a bit similar to, say, well, not so much the LA Lakers. Well, actually, tell it lie. A bit similar to the LA Lakers right now. Perhaps more like the Boston Celtics. Um, they're not quite what where they are, where they have been previously. They're not quite at their heyday. They're not quite in the golden age. Um, and like many massively followed sporting institutions that are not in uh, their golden age, there is a lot of conversation as to why not. There's a lot of conversation as to how they get back there there is a lot of uh how do i put this politely there are a lot of uh, different groups with very different opinions as to how and why why they're in uh, a relative mess and how and why they get out of a relative mess um so that ma- that creates a very interesting unique challenge in terms of reporting on that football club in that every day you wake up that and someone somewhere has very strong emotions about Manchester United Football Club and has wants you to answer questions as soon as possible. Um, it's something, so while I've been at The Athletic since 2019 full-time, I've also covered Southampton Football Club. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and the big change I, I'd give describing Southampton Football Club, a football club that you know mostly spends time in the bottom half of the Premier League uh, doesn't really play in Europe mostly only plays one game a week compared to Manchester United is um, the challenge of what I call localization. so um, Southampton Football Club the majority of people living in Southampton support Southampton Football Club it's, it's, a, right. it's a one club city um, and the majority of Southampton football fans live in England or they live in, or you know, if the majority of them live in England, and then some live in the United States, some live in Australia, but the majority of Southampton fans are from primarily English-speaking territories as a first language. Whereas if you look at Manchester United, the majority of Manchester United fans don't live in Manchester. And that's not a ha-ha-ha Manchester City joke, but uh, it's a Manchester United fandom is tens, possibly hundreds of millions of people, which means there are there's a huge amount of 
uh, Manchester United fans in Nigeria. There's a huge amount of them in Russia. There's a huge amount of them in India. There's a huge amount in Australia. There's a huge amount in Uzbekistan. And there's a huge amount in loads of different countries in the world, which means uh, it creates a unique challenge in that just because you're writing about Manchester United in the English language, you're not necessarily talking to all of the Manchester United football fans. There are Manchester United football fans in France that will need your work translated, which means you've got to write in a more international tone, shall we say. Hmm. So... Um, when I was covering Southampton, I used a lot of jokes around British television and a lot of British pop culture. I would say this is more convoluted than Pat Sharp's Funhouse, which was, uh, you know, uh, that was a children's TV show that broadcast in the 90s and on ITV1, which is our you know, free TV here. I can't say that if I'm covering Manchester United because a very well-meaning Nigerian or Indian football fan would go, what? What are you on about? Uh, or I have to explain that. Uh, you know, we're very much on the in, in the internet now and in the internet era, the, we love talking about sports by comparing them to Sopranos or comparing them to The Wire or comparing them to certain things. And you've got to bear in mind when you, when you write about Manchester United, that might not be the best thing to do because right. not everyone's seen The Sopranos, not everyone's seen that. Um, so trying to find frame of references for a constant daily challenge is also interesting. Um, so yeah, it it's a really interesting challenge about Manchester United because there is something every single day to talk about Manchester United and it will matter to every single kind of Manchester United fan because once you have once you are a football team or a sports institution or such a broad church there are questions of the on-field tactics you know what's going on with Manchester United on the field um, there are questions to be asked about what's going on in the dressing room in terms of player chemistry there are questions to be asked about finance there are questions to be asked about food sort of how do you feed that many uh, football fans in the stadium all the time? There are questions to be asked about broadcast revenue because, again, there are so many Manchester United football fans that have never been to Old Trafford, but also very much want to go to Old Trafford. Um, so I, I once wrote an article ahead of the, the Manchester derby in December 2020 where I walked from the Etihad Stadium in Manchester all the way up to Old Trafford. Um, and a lot of the questions, you know, the comment section was going, why are you writing about Manchester as if it's a foreign country? And I said, well, you have to understand, there's a lot of Manchester United fans that have never been to Manchester before and therefore will need someone to explain to them what Manchester rain is like, which is its own very unique type of rain that is completely different to the way rain falls in <laughs> London. It's like chubbier. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a challenge every day. It's uh, a challenge that I relish most of the time sometimes is it a challenge where you go oh bloody hell i have no idea if i want to do this um and uh yeah hopefully those that uh, read my work and engage my work enjoy it uh i if you don't uh, i apologize and i'll try my best to do better <laughs> how many full-time journalists would you say journalists media members are covering manchester united on on a regular basis like you and how competitive is it? And your access is different over there to the to the players, even to the coaches. Like, it's not like the NBA when LeBron James is obligated to speak before and after every NBA game. Like, um, so how you know how does all that work? Every answer I give you here is is with the the asterisks of this is COVID nineteen. Obviously, we know yes. we're talking right now over Zoom. Um, and I've never covered Manchester United in, in non-pandemic situations. So um, it's very strange in that I, I talked to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for the better part of 18 months, but I never physically talked to him in the same room. Uh, right. So it was all via Zoom press conferences, which is a, to, to explain sort of the, the regular media access now. Um, so on a Friday afternoon, if Manchester United play on a weekend, uh, Manchester United don't often play on a Saturday at three o'clock because Manchester United are one of the favourite broadcast teams. Um, so so to, to non-UK listeners to this podcast, uh, British television has a blackout. So any game of Premier League football that plays at three o'clock UK time on a Saturday is not available for viewing or broadcast on British viewers, right? It's, to, it's a very, very old rule that came about in the 50s that is supposed to encourage people paying money to go and watch football in stadiums and we sort of have a conversation about whether or not the blackout works every six months yeah, it always appears on twitter should we have the blackout blah, blah 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 so um that's one thing in terms of access and whatnot that there are some games that 
as a British viewer, if Manchester United do play a Saturday at 3pm and for some reason I'm not the person in the stadium or I've not been chosen to go to the stadium for that game, I can't watch that live. I have to watch highlights. I have to do this and this and this. Um, but there's also this fact of when Manchester United do play on the weekend, that they do a press conference. The manager does their press conference on, on a Friday. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer tended to do his press conference at one o'clock uh, because he very often spent his Friday mornings uh, speaking Norwegian to his family and when there's like a little bit of time to sort of reconfigure and get get back up to, to speaking English and answering all <laughs> those questions. So he'd, he'd come in to do his press conference uh, just after lunchtime. It'd be Zoom. Uh, so in the last, since 2019, uh, July 2020, all these press conferences have been done via Zoom. And Zoom is this, the Zoom football press conference is a strange democratization of press conferences. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, historically, you know, in, 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 in the pre-pandemic era, um, what would happen would be all of the journalists on the Manchester United beat or who've been selected to, to, to follow that game would travel to the training ground, would travel to Carrington, um, would get in a press conference room, wait for the manager to come out, and then you'd have your, your sort of however long it'd be where the manager would answer his questions. And then you know he'd answer all these questions for broadcast media, answer all of these questions for television and whatnot. And then it'd be a pause and then you get into what's known as the embargoed section, which is this, uh, again, I remember explaining this to, to my American friends. There's a fantastic article on The Ringer about this, about um, the the sports embargo in, in, in UK media, uh, where essentially your press conference gets split in half. So there's, there is a section where the manager comes in and very often it's, hello, football manager, um, your team is in certain amount of form, who is injured and who isn't injured. Uh, the manager tells you who's injured, who isn't injured, then there be general questions about the themes of the week, um, back and forth, and then there's a split, and then at, at half, half hour mark, roughly, where it goes into questions for for the newspapers, um, uh, and this is embargoed. So even though the conversation is happening for Manchester United traditionally around about one o'clock, there is at least half an hour of questions where the answers are not allowed to be released until ten thirty. <laughs> uh, you're laughing. Uh, because well, the idea behind the embargo is to pre- basically make sure newspapers have things worth selling. Um, yep. Because if all the quotes go out at the same time, they will go out via Twitter, they will go out via BBC or whatever on, on the website, then what, why would you ever need to buy a, a sporting newspaper? Um, so, And again, this is, this is another thing about whether or not the embargo, much like the blackout, should exist. Because these things are done to protect certain forms of media over or certain footballing viewing experiences over another. Uh, so as someone who works for The Athletic, even though I necessarily work in online media, I am in the embargoed section. Um, so the questions I ask in a press conference don't tend to get released until the embargo is is lifted. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes this is at 10.30 in, on, on the Friday. Sometimes this is sort of 45 minutes after the, the entire conversation. So it could be, I talk to him at one o'clock and then the answers don't go live until two. But there tends to be like a little gap, which is... Mm-hmm. You know, gives me a little bit of time to transcribe, gives me a little time to fact check, gives me a little bit of whatever. So that's that's the general ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to give you a context again about scale, when I was covering Southampton Football Club, there were three people in a press conference, in a physical press conference before mm-hmm. COVID. It would be me, it'd be the person from the local newspaper, uh, the Southampton Solent, and it'd be the person from the, the uh, local radio station. And we'd ask the manager there, Ralph Hassan, about football, and we'd have a nice little conversation that maybe lasts about 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. When it went to Zoom, because you didn't have to physically turn up to a training ground and essentially just had to email the football club and say, I would like to be on this press conference, it went from being three people to 15, which was quite interesting uh, because you had people that had, hadn't necessarily watched the football team from week to week, but because Southampton was the topic of that week, would drop in. Uh, and something that happens is when you're a beat reporter and you follow a team constantly, you tend to get know that there's certain questions and there's certain questions that the manager doesn't like, or there's certain questions right. that the manager's already answered two or three times before. So you know, you know, you don't want to waste your time talking to the manager, asking him about a certain thing because it's just not going to happen. But if you don't know, if it's your first time coming in, you obviously want to ask the big question and you go in there and you can sometimes just see everyone in the room go, don't ask him that. He, he hates that. <laughs> He hates that question. So uh, I was covering Southampton in 2019, 2020. Southampton during that season lost 9-0 to Leicester City. Raf Hassan very obviously did not want to talk about his biggest ever defeat every week 
but very often you had people very nice well-meaning journalists coming going how has your team recovered since the 9-0 and you could feel the visible just like yeah uh, it's great you keep bringing up the worst time of my life anyway um, so that's Southampton scale Manchester United scale I mean because it's such a massive football club I mean on every on your average Zoom press conference it's possibly 20 maybe even 30 people on mm. waiting to answer questions um, there's a certain I wouldn't say favourites but there are certain ever presence you know there's certain newspapers that you know are always going to be there you know the local newspaper is going to be there, the Manchester Evening News The Athletic tries to be there all the time because there's either me or myself uh, or Laurie Whitwell who also is the beat report or perhaps Andy Mitten who's a contributing writer to us as well so one of us three tends to be in one of those press conferences all the time um, when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was the manager we used to always see someone from Norwegian media there as well because obviously right. um, and then of course when Manchester United playing Europe or playing the Champions League then you tend to see French reporters there or Spanish reporters there as well so every now and again you're on Zoom and there's a translate button and you're waiting for someone to translate in real time as to what a football player is saying so it is a really strange experience supporting <laughs> Manchester United I think uh, there are so many times when I'm when I'm covering Manchester United where I'm going I really wish I had paid attention in Spanish class when I was at school <laughs> uh, I, I always say this to any any student I want wanting to get into sports media like if you could just learn one other language that isn't English that would help you so much more it gets work done a lot quicker um, and I'd say in terms of I mean again in access I'm forever in awe about the access NBA reporters get I, I remember playing yeah. NBA 2 I remember playing one I think it was like 2K19 <laughs> And there's a section in my player where my player is, is sort of walking in the car park and a journalist goes, hey, man, do you want to give me a line? And he turns around and goes, yeah, sure. I'm like, what? You can do that in NBA? <laughs> um, so so there's that. In football, there's something known as the mix zone. So there's a certain area around the stadium where a player can walk past and you can wait with a tape recorder and sometimes the player might stop and give you something. Very often going, you know, Mr. Pogba, Mr. Maguire, stop and give us a line about the game. And they're not obligated to stop um, which is his own sort of challenge in, in, in football like what can you say to make a f football player stop in the mix zone and talk uh, Andy Mitten has this fantastic story about how he was stuck in, in a football ground and he, he, he just he went I, you know, how am I going to get one of these guys to stop and Marcus Rojo walked past Marcus Rojo from Argentina Andy Mitten speaks very good very fluent Spanish uh, lives in Barcelona at the same time he knows his South American football very well uh, and he essentially just shouted something about the the Clasico uh, <laughs> and the Copa Libertadores and, and Boca Juniors and Rojo just sort of stopped turned and went there is no one Argentinian looking here who has said this comment and Andy sort of waved <laughs> to him uh, which is on it's, it's its own unique science um, British media the, the access isn't as open as NBA media, which cr means you have to be quite uh, creative. Um, the, the way we, we go into press conferences crit, uh, brings its own sort of unique challenges. I always describe it a bit like a poker game. If you watch a football manager from week to week, you begin to figure out their tells. So there were certain phrases that you know, there are certain phrases a football manager will use where you know he is not necessarily telling the whole truth. Or there are certain phrases you'll know where a football manager will do where you can tell they're angry at the question. Or there are certain things they do where like, oh, this is not enjoyable. Um, I've, I've sat in press conferences with Jose Mourinho uh, and known the way he started the answer going, uh-oh, he's, he's about to drop a grenade in here. Um, and I've been, in, I've been in certain press conferences with, with managers like Sean Dyche and knowing this man is really enjoying himself. So it, it's, it, it's a fun game in and of itself. I will tell a couple of quick stories here from my own experience because one is about the mixed zone and the embargo. I think I was covering like, maybe it was like Euro 2000 or something like that, pretty early in my career. But it was an, uh, there were English journalists and I didn't realize I was in the mixed zone and I didn't realize I had sort of glommed onto the Sunday papers writers. Mm -hmm. And so there was no official embargo, but they physically embargoed me from mm -hmm. entering their, their little interviews that they were doing with players coming by. Like they were not going to let a non-Sunday paper person be part. At first I was like, what is going on here? 
And finally, somebody explained it to me. I go, that's just crazy. Um, but I understood it, I guess, eventually. Um, and then at the 2006 World Cup, when the U.S. played Italy, I remember you talk about tactics to get players to stop in the mix zone to talk to you. I swear this is true, that somehow this Italian outlet had gotten in. They had two people representing the same outlet. And I, it was like a woman in a bikini, I swear, <laughs> who got an Italian player to stop. And then the second he stopped, and she was credentialed, by the way, and the second he stopped, the player stopped, the woman got out of the way, and this guy from the same outlet came in and did the interview. And <laughs> it was one of the wildest things I have ever seen before. But that's the mixed zone. There's probably a story to be written about mixed zone experiences over the years. Yeah, the mixed zone <laughs> hasn't come back to football yet due to the, the pandemic, which is... Uh, depending on on how long you've been in the industry or depending where you come from it either makes you happy or sad but it, it is is a game within a game and very often in those quotes some of them are embargoed as well so mm -hmm. it's a a very strange industry sometimes in terms of conversation <laughs> uh, because also very obviously again in terms of being a, a British sports fan, I remember the first time I, when I first started actively watching NFL and actively watching NBA, I remember being stunned at how, just how articulate the American athlete was. And he's going, yeah. oh, you, you're really giving me 30 second answers to your questions where very often, no disrespect to, to Premier League football players, sometimes they don't say the most enlightening things uh, in the mix zone. So you can spend half an hour in a car park waiting for uh, you know, a, a Chelsea fullback to come through, to which you'll say, "Great game." What do you think? And like, yeah, it's great. Go, could, you, could you say a little bit more? No. Well, that, 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 that was that. <laughs> oh man, I can sympathize with that. So I want to hear a little bit about your book with with Marcus Rashford, uh, which did very well. Congratulations on it. How did that come together? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's the most succinct answer. So previously, in a previous life before joining the Athletic. I worked with some very, very talented people at the Players' Tribune, which um, I think some of your American listeners may be familiar with. Yeah. So I was a, a sort of editorial consultant there over the, the 2018 World Cup, where, so just before the World Cup started, uh, a very, very talented man called Sean Conboy emailed me and went, I've got a lot of first-person testimonials from football players going to the, the World Cup, but as an American, I need a little bit of help localizing this. Can you help me turn cleats into football boots and up a nighty into top corner and explain what a penny floater is? Uh, a penny floater is a very particular type. A penny floater is a very particular type of football that you can buy at like a beach in England that uh, is called a floater because it's, it's very, very light and it's very easy to score goals that go top bins or it's, it's very fun to do free kicks with it, it's very popular with with school children and it gets used in school playground a lot so quite a few football players from a certain age talk about playing with penny floater footballs which you know sean was very much i've got you know this football players talking about a penny float and i've no idea what that is i'm like right it's this so i did that for the world cup um i then did the 2018-19 season working next to Sean, working next to a very talented person called Lucy McCalmon, uh, working next to Christian Hennage, who is now at New York. New York City. New York shit city. Uh, hi, Christian. Congratulations on your, he's a, one of the nicest guys in football. I wish him only the best things in life. Um, I say that and then Newcastle got bought out. Um, so I wonder if I, like, I inadvertently did the wrong wish. Um, <laughs> So I was working alongside those very, very talented people and more. Uh, and partway through that, developed skills to help tell first-person stories from athletes, help help do long-form interviews with athletes. Um, and went to The Athletic and whatnot, was always here or there with first-person essays. That was definitely something I, I, I was good at. I went, that's something I need to do with. Um, I also had a book agent at the time and, and wanted to write crime fiction whereas my agent was very much why don't you write in in the genre that you've already written in rather than something completely new uh and what happened was basically in in early december late late november of uh 2020 uh, i got a text message uh, from from my agent and said uh just between you and me 
but Marcus Rashford is interested in, in writing a book. Would you be interested if I put your name forward for it? I was very much half when you you know half not paying attention to this email going i'm probably not going to get it but i went yeah put my name down fine uh and so yeah put my name down for it and i sort of did a mental assessment in my head of if there was a queue of or or you know if 30 people apply for this job i'd probably be number 35 i said if you walked into the athletic offices right now and went i need a manchester united writer to, to write something in marcus rashford i wouldn't be number one i'd say you know there's people like Daniel Taylor's written multiple books who has written brilliantly about Manchester United. There's people like Oliver Kay who's written multiple books that has also covered Manchester United. I went, I'd be behind those two. I'd be behind someone like Andy Mitten who's, who's incredibly talented and great at this. So I thought, it's fine. I'll put my name down and it's just nice to nice to be mentioned. Have the cup of coffee. Uh, and, and then two weeks later, uh, I got a text message when I was mid-podcast uh, saying he's picked you. And I thought, what? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just told you there, and I, to listeners, Grant's eyebrows just sort of shot up his head as I told him that. Um, and that was very much my reaction. Uh, I said, okay, cool, great. Um, and so I went, that's fantastic. I'm horrified and terrified as to how this is now going to turn out. And uh, yeah, that, so I found out in, in December, and we wrote that book together in about three months. So wow. we've I f- we finished the the first completed draft of everything with the manuscript on April fifth. So uh, traditionally, you sort of take a year to write those sorts of books or books of that size, and we, and we did it in this about three four months. We had a fantastic editorial wow. team, um, and we were Marcus was really really generous with his time, which really helped a lot with the process as well. And it was an incredible, edifying experience. I, I think I'm, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. I think so. Um, it's your, called You Are a Champion. It's not a straight autobiography of Marcus Rashford's life mm-hmm. by any means. It is a children's self-help book, so to speak. So mm-hmm. uh, when Marcus was 17, he was handed a copy of Relentless by Tim Grover. Tim Grover, mm-hmm. who some of your listeners might know as the, the pers- former personal trainer to Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Reid. Uh, it was all, and it's a book very much about mental resilience, about how you can... Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Grover's idea is there are three types of athletes in life. There are uh, coolers, there are closers, and there are cleaners. Uh, and cleaners are the top of the pile because cleaners have the keys to everything and they clean up the mess that everyone else has. And in life, you want to strive to be a cleaner uh, or, or be the cleaner of your team. Uh, and Marcus, when he was 17, he's in United's Academy, really... Uh, this book really resonated with him. He reads it once a year now, even at 24, goes through it with pen, uh, pen, pencil and just underlines certain things about it. And he said he'd be really interested to, to, to make a version like this of this book for, for children. Uh, huh. Not so much about how you just need to be utterly relentless and, and, and have a member mentality uh, in, in, in the classroom, but essentially... A, a useful guide for children that could help them dream that could help them understand that there is limitless potential within them and that they can they can they're allowed to do the things they want to do in life um and so every chapter begins with a personal story and an anecdote from marcus's life and then goes into some some practical tools that children can uh, apply in their day-to-day lives about writing down their dreams and going out and, and achieving them. that's awesome uh congratulations on it um and look forward to whatever your next book project might be. Uh, you yeah, are a champion specific? is coming out. You are a champion is coming out in 2022 for for, for American nice. audiences. So we just, I've, I, I think I'm allowed to say this, but uh, I, I just did a little edit of, of the old copy uh, and, and created a, there's a new chapter right at the front mm-hmm. that will also include a little bit about the Euros uh, and Marcus's experience of the Euros, which I think, will be of interest to american yeah. audiences as well That's so uh to the american r- listener uh look out for that when it c- when it comes up i think it's going to come out in the spring of 2022 okay. very cool i will look for it africa cup of nations is going on i know you have a ghanaian background and my sense is that over in england in particular there's a lot of disrespect of, of AFCON. Uh, that's not how we approach things here. We had Mimi Fawaz on uh, the podcast recently to talk all about Africa Cup of Nations. The tournament's happening right now. Um, how do you feel about AFCON? And, and 
you know, how people feel about it over there. It's an interesting one in that uh, Ian Wright, who I, I do a podcast with uh, and, and talk to quite often, recently gave some quotes about has there ever been a football competition as disrespected as often as AFCON? And that was in response to an interview Sebastian Allaire was given um, in Dutch television where Haller was asked, would he much rather stay with Ajax or, or play with Ivory Coast at AFCON? And Haller was sort of waved off like, that's a ridiculous question. Of course, I would have rather, I'm, I, you know, of course I'd want to play for my, my country. Uh, and Ian Wright's point was, there is no great accolade for any football player other than to represent their country. But for some reason, if your nation is, is African, it's regarded as less important as playing in Europe's top five leagues, which I think... Um, is a long-standing formulation that is not thought about enough. Uh, I think we've come to that formulation due to a combination of a number of factors. Uh, money, monetary, you, know, you get paid a lot more to play for Ajax than you get paid to play for Ivory Coast, even if you, you, know, if you do get paid for Ivory Coast. Uh, the impact of colonialism. So it, I'm talking to you in English with an English accent, despite the fact I come from Ghanaian heritage. Ghana's only been independent from the United Kingdom for 64 years uh, and it was the first sub-Saharan country to, to gain independence from its colonial powers so even though there is some difference between England and Ghana there's not it's not been too long Ghana's no longer been ruled uh, been subject to colonial rule there has been a, a interesting relationship between the United Kingdom and Ghana in the last 60 years uh, I am a child of the 90s and I can remember quite vividly watching footage and newsreels and discussion about how Ghana and people in Ghana lived in mud huts and how even though they've left the United Kingdom, the country's in a lot worse of a state than they were under British rule and whatnot, which is, a, in my opinion, a very insidious form of racism. I'd also say there was a definite point in my life where people in England didn't know what Ghana was or where Ghana was. Uh, and it was a lot easier for me to say, no, I'm not from Ghana, I'm from somewhere else. Um, the interesting thing about that, and I think the reason why AFCON matters to me is because AFCON's a really good opportunity to very quickly show people where your home is from, uh, who, who, what is the, the history of your home country as well. So uh, I've spoken about this before. Uh, my dad's spoken about this before, about how for a long time when he came over to, to England in the 80s, no one really knew where Ghana was. It was a tiny sub-Saharan country that wasn't it basically wasn't as big as Nigeria so no one knew what Ghana was and then one day Tony Yeboah scored a fantastic goal for Leeds United Tony Yeboah was Ghanaian and it was the big Ghanaian Tony Yeboah scores the best goal and he said he remembered very visibly the next day at work the security guard knew what Ghana was hmm. and that's the power of football in that I my knowledge of you know, like European geography is very much shaped by the Champions League <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't I would never have learned about a city called Dortmund if it wasn't for Borussia Dortmund in the 1997 Champions League. I would not have known about my, you know, my history of my history of Russian cities. Basically, comes from <laughs> Europa League games, the Russian World Cup, and whatnot. I, I, if you ask me what cities do you know in Azerbaijan, I can give you the capital and Baku and like the four or five countries uh, four or five clubs that are in Baku I can tell you the towns there football's <laughs> football's a great way of educating you in terms of geography in terms of language in terms of recent history uh, and I think this is why AFCON's really really important uh, I think if you are based in Western Europe or the Western world it can be very easy to just not pay attention or not know the history of of non-English speaking places or, or non-English culture sharing places uh, and I think if you watch an AFCON and go oh why 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 is that national anthem singing songs about that why is the Ethiopian flag that color why is the Angolan flag got an AK-47 on it well and you go well actually here's the history of Angola here's their relationship with Portugal here's this here's this and here's I think that's why AFCON's really important to me as well I think it's got a very unique footballing style uh, I, I often borrow this line from my friend Jack Lang, who often describes footballing tournaments as having their own musical time signatures. So, uh, European football and World Cups are played to a 4 4 beat, but I think something mm -hmm. like AFCON comes in a 3 4 beat, which can take a little bit to, to tune into. But I think AFCON is, is his own entirely unique, refreshing, and deeply informative football tournament. I think if you 
there is a there is a football fan out there that has the viewpoint that money has spoiled the game. There is a football fan out there that thinks the advancements in technology and the advancements in player care have made uh, footballers more robotic and there's less dribbling and there's less artistry to it. Uh, And to those, I would say, watch African Cup of Nations because these are not people playing for money. These are not necessarily players who are gifted the sort of tactical information and, and physical nutrition that a club like Manchester City has. And even if they did, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? So the great thing about AFCON is there are no guarantees of anything. You go into every AFCON and go, well, this team is the favourite. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. Didier Drogba was the leader of one of the greatest golden generations of Ivory Coast football of all time. Didier Drogba's never won an AFCON. And he tried a lot. And he couldn't get close because AFCON is just bizarre. You think you know AFCON and then all of a sudden one player who will never play in a major league in Europe turns up has like a great three games where he scores four goals and you go I can't believe that my nation's been destroyed by this one striker so you know I am of a certain age and I remember watching a very good Ghanaian side be destroyed by Aristide Banse who was a very jobbing journeyman striker for Burkina Faso in 2013 uh, he still hurts <laughs> um, and I think that's great uh, this tournament hasn't necessarily been the most high scoring at the moment I think I'm talking to you right now there's been seven one nils and at least four nil nil draws um, and, and the most tournament favourites haven't really excelled apart from Nigeria at the moment but I think that has a lot more to do with the fact there were no pre-season well pre-season as I speak warm-up games and everyone's sort of learning on the job rather than saying AFCON is rubbish so yeah I'd say give it a go I'd say dip your toe in at a, at a knockout game especially if you can find a grudge match because there always is a grudge match uh, definitely watch that and uh, yeah give yourself some time tune into the unique musical signatures of an AFCON and understand what football can be like uh, from a completely different world, so to speak. Carl Anka is a Manchester United reporter and columnist for The Athletic. He's also a broadcaster and the co-author of a book with Marcus Rashford called You Are a Champion. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show. No, it's been a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Jordan Morris and Carl Anka, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.